Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host of Face for Radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. With me today as co-panelists, I have returning special guest slash host slash know-it-all view guy, Mr. Eric Hanshed. How are you doing, Eric? Hey, hey. Nice to have Nice to be here. Yes, it's always good to have Eric back. Uh, for those of you who don't know Eric, look up Program with Eric on YouTube and you will get all kinds of stuff. Now, I have to say, lately he's been getting sort of heretical, suggesting that you might not be the best thing for everything. So take that with a grain of salt. But uh, uh, no, he's, he's, got a, he's got a great channel. Lots of stuff to learn there, for sure. Uh, and our very special guest today, I'm going to see if I can do this... Right, Mr. Reich Van Zanten. There's a Germanic R that I'm sure I'm mutilated. <laughs> but uh, how you doing? Doing really well, thanks. Good. So, uh, Mr. Van Zanten here works for a company called Direct Direct Us. Is that how you say Direct it? Direct Us. Yeah. Direct Us. Yes. Okay. Which they use a lot of view, which okay. is why we're on views on view. So. Uh, before we get started, why don't you tell us, give us a little background on yourself, your development history, who you are, why you're famous, or you will be famous after this, actually, but <laughs> you might be famous now, well, yeah, uh, and so on. Yeah, so I started a long time ago as a UX designer, actually, so I'm very much from a design angle. Um, and I started developing, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, something around that space, um, basically the sole you know, the problems of trying to implement my own designs, right? So I wanted to design something and be able to build it and take that take that from start to finish. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of website work over the years, a lot of agency work, a lot of website projects, um, and started to realize more and more, you know, what type of tooling I needed in order to do a good job at those projects. And that's basically how I started rolling into what I'm doing now with Directus, which really started off as sort of a, you know, data platform that I needed myself for a lot of those projects that I was doing. And ever since the start of the current version of Directus that I uh, started building there, uh, we've been using Vue from beginning to end, really. And it's been a great, great process so far. Yeah, you, you're, my, uh, you're my opposite. I came in, uh, to, to quote Jerry, uh, Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Because I came in from the uh, back end, so I am design illiterate and struggle with the CSS and do the best I can. <laughs> Somebody give me a design, please. You know, so, so yeah, I'm always jealous of you guys that have all the design chops that can make everything look really good and do the view programming, for sure. So, uh, so what you just out of curiosity, you said you've been using Vue from the beginning. Have you ever done like much with like vanilla JavaScript? Uh, like maybe any other, maybe you're like me that started with a little, judging by 13 to 14 years, so about 2010, maybe played with Angular or something before you got into Vue or... Oh, yeah. Or what's yeah. your, uh, what's oh, your it framework started, experience? Yeah, it started very, very vanilla, for sure. So it was always straight HTML, CSS, JavaScript, um, where, where appropriate. In those days, I also did a lot of, you know, WordPress development, which is a lot of PHP templating, and then sort of straight CSS and straight JavaScript where where mm -hmm. needed. Mm -hmm. um, then in terms of frameworks, you know, I did dabble with React a little bit. I dabbled with Angular a little bit around the time. But for a lot of those website projects back in the day, I didn't really need a lot of framework capabilities. 
this was a bit more of a nice to have than a harsh requirement at that time. Cause just the type of websites that I used to build were just fairly simple, right? It was very informative, very little to no interactivity. Um, so framers weren't really as much of a requirement back then. It was really just in the last couple of years, uh, when I started building more, you know, interactive, um, interactive installations, interactive digital media, sort of experience driven apps and, and website projects that framers became really, you know, more of a requirement than a nice to have, honestly, at that point, you know, you reach a level of complexity where that just becomes a requirement. Um, and that's really when I started using more and more frameworks and basically started to, you know, view became sort of the standard for me at that point. Um, but yeah, dabbled with React as well and with Svelte and with Astro. And it basically, as you know, part of my job now is to make sure that, you know, Direct just works together with all of those things as well. So I do dabble around a little bit, um, but Vue is still sort of the, the, the primary platform. Do you ever do jQuery? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I'm similar. I came from the Drupal world uh, where I spent a lot of time there first. And so I remember when jQuery first came out, and then, uh, well, not when it first came out, when it was pretty young, and then Drupal incorporated it as part of the framework itself. And so for a lot of time, uh, there was, you know, jQuery was incorporated, and so that's how you did anything JavaScript-y, yeah, right? And sure. then Angular came out, and people started incorporating it. The famous example was the Weather Channel using Angular on the front with Drupal on the back, and you could actually incorporate it into the templates and make things really quick, and that was some cool stuff. Uh, but then I made the jump to get away from Drupal and just into the view stuff full time. So, yeah, I've seen that as well. Oh, the wonderful world of browser incompatibilities. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How did Directus become and where does the name come from? I'm just wondering. Yeah, great. So the, the name itself is uh, Latin for, I believe it is organized and orderly. <laughs> Because it's mm -hmm. basically as a platform meant to okay. know, help you make sense of a database and make that available for you know your actual web projects. So the name is kind of fitting, um, and it started off uh, a long time ago. You know, uh, before before the now CEO and I partnered up on what is now Directus, um, he used to run it inside of his agency here in Brooklyn um, as a sort of internal admin tool for you know the web projects that they were building at the time, and. Um, I think it was 2016. Oh man, years ago, time flies. Uh, 2016 that I started dabbling in sort of the similar space and came across, you know, the version that they just open sourced um, and kind of had my own take on, you know, certain improvements and things I would do differently, including using Vue, funnily enough. Um, and we sort of teamed up and, and spun it out from there. So is the general idea behind Directus, like you have data somewhere and you want to get that data to the front end, like so, like the one of the examples I see on the web page is like turn any database into a headless data engine. So it's kind of like it's almost like a headless CMS in some ways. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, the the in some ways is the important part there. <laughs> I think the the main differentiator, and that's also why sometimes explaining what it is is tricky, is that we're really trying to focus on it is you know a, a sort of composable platform for helping you do data whatever that is. Because to me, a headless CMS is basically one utilization of what a data platform is and can do. But if you want to use it as like a, an inventory management system, to me, that is just, you're managing different entities of data, but you're still just managing data, right? Um, so we're really treating it more as a broader sort of 
a composable platform. That's just one of the ways that, that feels right to explain it now. Um, where if you want to use it as a headless CMS, it makes for a great headless CMS, but it can be, you know, much more. And it looks like it has like the preferred way to talk to the databases using GraphQL. It's it's end user preference, honestly. We do ship, mm. you know, a full REST API, GraphQL API, WebSockets endpoints, you know, a JavaScript SDK. And it's really up to whoever is using it to just choose what is their preferred stack. And we we don't want to be too opinionated about that. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, what's your? Okay. I'm yeah. I'm still trying to get my head around. That's a lot of. Seems like a lot of flexibility. What's your backend data store? If you're storing my data in headless CMS, what type of? Just are you using like a document database, like a Mongo, something SQL, all of the above. Yeah. So right now we started with uh, basically any of the SQL databases. So we have an abstraction that allows for all of the popular ones, you know, from MySQL, Postgres, uh, to Maria, the, the provider specific ones, you know, Aurora or the, the Azure SQL databases, you know, any sort of SQL relational database. Um, but we are also updating sort of that same data pipeline to, to look up sort of beyond um, just the databases in, in the SQL space, in the relational databases. Um, so we are looking to see, you know, what would that same interface and sort of uh, I.O. look like if it were a document database instead of a relational database or, you know, a vector database or whatever it was, a graph database or something more sort of domain specific just to really help, you know, the, the developer um, um, give us a sort of common set of tooling no matter where the data lives at the end of the day. Like we're, again, we're trying to not to uh, really sit around a data store and abstract it away completely. We kind of want to sit next to it, right? And give you a sort of set of tools to make your life easier, but not necessarily completely block off um, access to the underlying data. So some people, do they compare you to Superbase? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Which is funny, because <laughs> if you're thinking about a headless CMS, you know, that's not one that, that comes up usually, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, so that's why the and more is very important when it's a, <laughs> a headless CMS, kind of, and more, right? So we do get compared to Superbase, but also sometimes to Hazura and more of that backend as a service space. Sometimes we get compared to like a Sanity for more of a very focused, you know, mm-hmm. CMS type of environment. Um, oh, no, that no, that's awesome. I, I definitely feel like I don't know if it's just me, but the whole headless CMS space got really crowded in the last mm-hmm. uh, five, six years, and everybody was headless CMS, and the Jamstack was like hot. Were uh, I know hot slogan, and then it kind of I don't know. It feels like it's not as uh, it's not. It doesn't have as much momentum as it had before, I suppose. But there's always these platforms doing these managed services that make it easier to interact with databases or I'm thinking like auth and things like that. It seems like that's always that that's a lot more popular now. And that can do multiple things, not just be like a headless CMS. Right. Yeah, so you have it's looking like you have a number of different options here. I'm looking at your toolkit, right? Um now is the assumption that your data is somewhere is in your back end, right? You know, that's where all the data is storing on the director servers or however you do it. It, it kind of, again, depends on what you need, really. Because like you can self-host the whole of Directus, use your own database, run it wherever, however you want. Um, you can have your sort of, we do offer it as a SaaS version as well, if you don't want to be bothered by having to do the hosting yourself and sort of all the production, you know, complexities that come with that. 
Um, there's hybrid options there, you know, for certain enterprise clients, we have sort of databases that they manage themselves, but then we manage the sort of hosting of the platform. So we're trying to keep that similarly as with the rest of it, as flexible as we can, because at the end of the day, we can't really make that decision for the end user, because there's oftentimes a lot of different business requirements or just, you know, technical wants and needs. Um, so it feels, it feels wrong, at least from my perspective, it feels weird for me as a sort of as the service to say it has to be only this way because that's the one way that you know we think is right for you. Um, so are you saying so Eric works for AWS, right? And so are you saying we could well, okay, is the hosting you said you want to self-host, is that open source or is that something that like you they would license it through you? Um bit of both, funnily enough. So this is uh this is a subject I could talk about for hours and hours. So I'll try to keep it a little bit brief. Um <laughs> It started off as like fully, fully open source, right? It was a GPL3 licensed project. Um, but we started to realize fairly quickly that what we noticed happening was um, if you have a product where you have a sort of open core model, right? With a smaller open core thing. And then a SaaS version where you put all the bells and whistles. What starts to happen is that just by the nature of having to focus on the revenue generating pieces, you start prioritizing one over the other, Right. So you, you end up with a really fantastic product on the paid side and then a sort of, you know, a little bit a, a, a scaled down version, so to speak, on an open core. Um, and even with certain projects that we saw trying to do some sort of dual licensing where you have a smaller free core, but then for certain features, you got to pay. Right. Um, you still have that focus switch where you have to focus your efforts on the paid site just by the nature of capitalism. So in order to still make it sustainable, what we ended up doing is actually um, making a sort of fresh take on the BSL license. So we have seen that in use for some other parties like Sentry or Couchbase. We're actually very intrigued about what that could mean for a project like ours, where we're now effectively saying, you know, it is um, free to use, it's open source for individuals and companies up to a certain size, up to a certain scope. Right. And then at a certain point, if you hit a certain financial threshold, e.g., you know, your, your yearly revenue, um, then it becomes a commercial license just to make sure to keep the project sustainable. Right. So that's all based on the end user. So it's really a sort of fresh take on the, the open source funding project that has been, you know, plaguing this world for as long as open source has been a thing, unfortunately. Um, but it's, it's a yeah, fascinating subject to me. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I've I've definitely seen this this uh this paradigm where all these open source projects need to like sustain itself somehow and some do advertising and some have direct contributions, some create conferences, but like this model of having a, a tier where you can use it basically for free to a, a certain size and then you have to pay or, or get a commercial license definitely makes sense. It reminds me I wonder if Ghost, like I remember back in the day, Ghost like had the open source blogging platform, mm -hmm. but then they had, they they created a whole hosting platform around it and that's how they earned their money. And then all these Ghost competitors came out and they all failed. And then, uh, so, but the Ghost core team was hired on and they were basically essentially a part of the company to keep kind of this corporate governance of this open source project and keep it going. Yeah. and then make money off of it. it yeah it's uh it's different different ways to think about it i wonder uh well go ahead steve did you have a question no go ahead uh i want to kind of switch back 
to or switch to view though. So I think that is a fun topic. I'm with you too. <laughs> I think we could talk about how open source projects make money and how, how that works in. But you said this project was originally, uh, the front end was on Vue 2, right? Um, so the, the project itself has been around now under uh, under the Ranger Studio flag for long enough where the original very first version was an action script. Whoa. And then it was running in uh, <laughs> just playing JavaScript for a little bit. And then it became, um, what was that other one called? It, it wasn't Bootstrap, it was something similar. It was another library. I forget. The oh, name. like Foundation or Bulma or something like that. Yeah, yeah, one of those. But it was it was even earlier than that. It was um, gosh, I can't think of the name now. No, well, it doesn't matter. It was like another, you know, early one of the very early JavaScript frameworks that came out. Um, um, but then when I, you know, when I started to join teams with Ben um, and turned this sort of open source project into, you know, sort of the next the next phase of the project, I sort of redid that app layer in Vue two at the time. Um, that was then just released as Vue 2. Oh, so like really early on Vue 2. So walk me through the decision to go with Vue 2 at that time versus React, which I'm sure was gaining a lot of momentum. Yeah, it was It was basically one or the other, right? It was between React and Vue. Um, the main decision-making there for me was one very much driven by this sort of open source idea where I really wanted to make sure that it was going to be as easy as possible for as many people as possible to contribute. And I felt like at the time, and I still feel like that to this day, honestly, that the view single file components are just a little bit easier to get into if you haven't used view before, right? So if you've never used React before, getting into a React component can be quite a challenge because it really depends on the project itself, how the, the files are structured, how styles are handled, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in a view single file component, you just had a very common split, so to speak, just between you know the template, the, the script, and then the styles, very much following that original separation of concerns sort of idea from the HTML, JavaScript, and CSS days. So it felt like a very natural progression from sort of, you know, you know, generic web development, and then the step to view was a relatively small step uh, to me. No, I, I 100% agree. I, I remember going from like Angular 2+, which had three separate files, one for CSS. Each CSS file was connected to an individual component in its own file. And then you had the TypeScript file, and then you had the HTML file. And then you go from that to uh, React, which is like, oh, let's, you know, our JSX and our CSS and JS, and, and we have everything, HTML, everything's in this one function. And then you're like, Vue had this kind of nice separation uh, between all three scope styles. Yeah, it definitely felt like that's one of the main advantages of yeah. the jumping in, especially the, the HTML bit is also like actual HTML. So <laughs> right? this is the one thing I, I kept tripping myself up to with JSX, just with some of the you know attribute names that have to be JavaScriptified, if you want to call it that, uh, just from the framework constraints. Yeah, I came from Angular 1, which is even more confusing. To this day, I still I don't think I ever got my head around it. I was able to use it enough to be dangerous. But, but uh, yeah, that was about it. And that was, that was so confusing. Once I got into Vue and started playing with it, I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is so much easier to understand. And I recognize HTML and CSS classes and, and all that. So, yeah, that was definitely easier. Is the directus.io website also open source? 
Yeah, yeah, that repo is just open source. The website is built in Nuxt, um, so it's slightly, mm. slightly even more view, <laughs> if you could call it that. Oh, so you, you have Nuxt 3 on there and everything? That's right, yeah. Ah. Uh, so let me... So you, you, you built it in, in Vue originally, I'm guessing Vue CLI or maybe Nux 2 back in the day. Yeah, that was Vue CLI then, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've kind of migrated over to to Nux. Uh, are you using it? I'm, I'm assuming it's like a single, it's a static site. Uh, yeah, so the website is uh, statically generated at this point, mm-hmm. uh, but using Nux 3. And the direct app itself is still plain, plain Vue 3, you can call it that. Yeah, nice. So when this big view two to view three kind of hubbub started coming up, I mean view three has been talked about since 2020, and and it took a long time for a lot of companies to move over. How was your journey to view three? I wonder. Oh yeah, we were hyped and right there from day one. <laughs> it's like. It was especially when we saw, you know, the earlier drafts come out for the composition API. We really started, you know, preparing for that and learning for that and also contributing a little bit. I remember, you know, in the early days, leaving, you know, comments on the RFCs and making sure if we ran into something weird in that compatibility package that they did, you know, that view to uh, composition API package. Um, when that came out, you know, also there trying to contribute as much as we could. Just because, you know, we recognized pretty early on that just the composability of the whole thing and the shareability of, you know, logic between components was just a massive game changer um, for how we were structuring components. Where before, it's just, I, I know we could, but we never really did uh, dabble too much with mix-ins or trying to share computed functions or things like that. It just didn't feel as organic, I suppose. So when we saw that new sort of compositional syntax come out, um, we basically prepared for that as soon as we could and, and just flipped the switch day one. Yeah, that's pretty impressive you were able to get in because I know so many companies that were like the opposite, that were like scared to move from to view three from view two because of uh, because of all the changes and right. the composition yeah. API was scary. Uh, but I mean, you said you did it the right way. You used the compatibility build. So do you have any yeah. tips that people should should think of if they're moving from view two to view three? I know you did it a few years ago, a couple of years ago now, but yeah, it's um it I mean it's the <laughs> the honest answer is with many things programming, it really depends, of course. It depends a little bit on the project that you're doing, it depends a little bit on company culture, it depends a little bit on how much unit testing you already have in place, you know, how secure you can make it. Um, we kind of went with a rip the bandaid off approach that worked really well for us because we were, you know, able to just, because we were already using sort of view three syntax within view two, the actual swap from two to three was minimal. Um, so that helped out a lot. Um, so I think in, in general strategies, I would start with that, honestly. It's like by starting moving over some of the components into the newer syntax, get a feel for it. Um, ideally with, you know, the, composi- the, the, uh, the composition API package, just start migrating things over bit by bit, get a few for it, make sure you have enough tests in place because that really helps. And then flip the switch, see what breaks. Hopefully nothing. Yeah, since <laughs> U27, there's a lot of U3 backported into it, if I remember right. So, I mean, you could, I guess there's two ways you could do it, right? You can stick with U27, start to build some of your U3 Composition API stuff, and then switch to Vue three, or go to Vue three, but still use the options API, you know, 
and then slowly switch over to composition API. Yeah, because from the underlying actual breaking changes between two and three, of course, I'm thinking about it in the lens from going from the options API to a composition API. That was the big switch for us. But from actually upgrading, you know, the underlying engine, so to speak, from from two, I think it was what two six at the time, two five, into view three, that was really not that big of a change. Um, we had a couple of complexities out of just misusing <laughs> or, or extending what view was supposed to do because we. So so uh, just a bit of backstory there, a quick sidebar. One of the complexities for the directus project in general is that we allow people to build their own extensions, right? So we're trying to dynamically register additional components and dynamically pull in components from third party sources and then having them work within the same view app sort of context. Um, so we had some some relatively hacky nonsense going on within View too to make that work um, and share the correct you know global scopes for for those extension types. Um, so for us, that was basically the biggest pain point in migrating. But that's that's yeah, like I mentioned, if your if your project doesn't really have some of that nonsense going on, some of that additional level of complexity, the switch from two to View three, I don't think it's really all that that crazy. I, I remember from other frameworks, you know, if you major upgraded WordPress way back in the day or even Angular or React, it was it was oftentimes just, well, you can just start from scratch. But I feel like it was relatively, relatively flip a switch. Yeah, I think the yeah. biggest switch is that you're not, at least for me in going from View 2 to View 3, was the fact that you've got a lot of all this stuff in your setup instead of you got an object here for you know, methods, an object here for computed and an object for watchers, an object for this. So you can just reorganize it and, and do it as you wish. And there's syntax stuff like, uh, you know, some of the global stuff like use prop and use emit and some of those things. And then the fact that your functions are just functions, right? You know, just a function. The one thing that gets a little tricky that I'm going to guess trips most people up is that if you're using a, uh, a ref, you know, some type of object, if you're in your script, you got to use value. And if you're in your template, you don't use value. Mm. Uh, you know, stuff like that. That's a little bit tricky. But uh, that, other than that, it's, it hasn't been any real huge changes. I have I have yet to try to use a composable, um, you know, something generic that can be used across components. And I'm sure I have a place where I can. I just haven't done it yet. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's it. So one question for you real quick. Uh, what is your use of TypeScript? Because, uh, you know, that's always the thing to ask. Um, I haven't jumped aboard the TypeScript train just yet. Not that it's only been out, not been out for 10 years or something. But, you know, with Vue 2, it was sort of a bolt-on. It was really difficult to use. Whereas yeah. with Vue 3, it's, you know, part and parcel. Not only is the core written into it, but you can use it very easily in your components. So how does... How's TypeScript fit into what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, we use it for everything at this point. Um, so I do have to admit with that, that some of the components that haven't been updated the longest, there's just a handful that come to mind that because they were moved over from a view too, there's one too many any's still in place for my taste. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, yeah, everything is, is TypeScript um, on, on the full stack for that matter, both front end and back end. Um, once you get used to it, it's really hard to get out of it, to be completely honest. I am, I am, that being said, I am looking, um, or following along, I guess is a better word, 
with a lot of interest in sort of doing TypeScript through, you know, the JS doc commons rather than TypeScript as a language. Yeah, like Svelte did. That's exactly right. what Svelte did, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, we tried it out a couple of different times. There were always a couple of hiccups or just like rough edges that made it a little tricky to do it at the larger scale that we're sort of in, in, in this repo. Um, but skipping, you know, skipping a build step um, and skipping some of that tooling complexity feels like a nice change. But in general, yeah, we do type everything. Lifesaver. I think it's tough too if you have a code base and you allow any and then all of a sudden, like a couple months later, later you're like, maybe you shouldn't have allowed any because now we have any everywhere and now you have to refactor that back out. I, I always like, I made that mistake in a project I was working on at work. Now we have some places harder to add types yeah. in. I mean, we, we really don't uh, allow it for new code or allow it even in, in the API side at all. It was mostly just while migrating the view hmm. to code over the view three, there were a lot of places where, um, because we're redefining how props are defined that all of a sudden, you know, a prop type now comes out, you know, weird or comes out in the wrong way. Hmm. I think that's where, you know, one too many angles have been, and these have been sprinkled in just to get through the migration in the first place. Because, mm. um, you know, the longer that process is, is ongoing, the more merge conflicts you're going to get, of course, and the more difficult it will get. Um, so in this sort of rip the bandaid approach, we've got to have to move a little bit faster on the component side. Um, but those typings have been cleaned up. So every time we make an update, any of the existing components, mm. those things get cleaned up along the way. And the directest SDK is fully TypeScript aware and typed. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so you dog food your own uh, directus in your own front end website. I saw you have your own. Yeah. Yeah. Our uh, website is built on directus. Our whole SaaS is run on directus itself, also, which is kind of funny. So it's it's all <laughs> it's it's fairly meta. Oh, that's good. I'm sure, like new devs coming in, like once they put that, like they learn on the job. Also, when they have to connect your SDKs and use your APIs directly inside the SaaS and in the front front end, makes sense. So just for those who might not use TypeScript, I wanted to go back and clarify something real quick. We were talking about using any and how that can be a problem. What exactly is using any in TypeScript? As I understand it, it's basically saying, okay, pass in whatever you want. <laughs> you know, there's not a particular type or something. Is that I right? basically call it disabling TypeScript temporarily right. right you're basically saying where this variable is normally supposed to be a string if you say any it could just be typescript just says it could be whatever and we don't care that's the important difference because we do every now and again use the unknown type uh, on purpose where it's like you know you expect it to be anything and you can't know ahead of time what it is you got to account for that but with an any you're really just saying disable any type checking for this one thing that you marked as any uh, which therefore you just negate the point of using types in the first place, right? Because if you just right. mark it as don't check it, then why use types? Yeah, exactly. Well, so, I mean, if you, I'm sure if you're in in the process of a uh, a code revamp where you're going from no TypeScript to TypeScript, you're going to run to those places where heck, you could have this or this or this. And granted, in Vue, um, you know, with props. And even in view two, you could always specify, you know, this is the type and is it required and and so on and so forth. You could even have methods to define default values on the fly and you could do all kinds of stuff. The, the issue is whether or not you actually do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, 
exactly. I think one one point where we recently found that we kind of never even thought about types was in defining the emits, which especially now in uh, I think really? U3.3, where you know you define the emits, but you also define what the value type is that you're emitting. Oh. And before, we just oftentimes just had the array of named, you know, named right. events that we would be uh, emitting, oh. but never really type the actual data that would be sent across the wire. So that's one of those other sort of refactoring efforts that we're doing. I didn't know that. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. I have a question too. I was just looking at the code base. Uh, your linting rules, was there, as was that kind of organically just being built up in the last couple of years? Uh, or is that something that you, you guys are constantly changing or updating? Because obviously, like I see, you have the V3 recommended, yes, the recommended, and then you have some specific rules. Yeah. I don't is. know. Linting's fun. Linting is definitely fun. And it's also <laughs> the biggest opinion based <laughs> <laughs> opinion thing, opinion based thing on the planet. It's, we don't change it all the time because we do. I, you know, we have to be very respectful of like if we change a linting rule, we now change what 1200 files and therefore every other PR will be bust until they also <laughs> fix it. Um, so it's, it's something that we change very carefully, but it is very much based on opinion and opinion of the team over time, right? Where we started to realize that, you know, um, having, so, especially when it comes to like, oh, if you have a, a, a block that has multiple lines, have a wide line next to it, because that just makes reviewing easier. Uh, that type of stuff, right? So it's it's really just a, a personal preference thing that grew over time, for sure. Do you block PRs on linting errors? Oh yeah, yep. <laughs> that's no, oh, yeah, that's totally makes sense. Uh, throughout the time, things just keep changing and adding, and we also and... heavily rely on prettier next to that as well. So it's like mm. for a lot of these linting rules, you know, it would be very annoying if a PR is just automatically blocked and says go do an hour of refactoring yourself uh, to make it look pretty. So, you know, we do rely on prettier to, to get rid of some of those opinions based on the same rules. Um, so, you know, in, in VS Code, you have a couple of shortcuts set up and then the PR will just check it as well. What do you think about code coverage? Do you have a code coverage? I'm just looking at your PR, PR. So I, don't, I think you have something. We do. We do have something. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the the right approach. I, when we started building the app, I think at that time, the, the tooling around doing proper unit tests, especially review components, was just a little tricky still. It was fairly, you know, rough around the edges. The the packages that were available would like have, have breaking changes fairly often. Um, and there wasn't really any sort of consensus yet on what the right approach was. And we had the same problem when we switched to the composition API too, because it was so early at the time. You know, when we started use Opinia, it was literally 0.0.1. And I think if you go to the repo now, there's an issue for me from early early numbers that asks like, what is the recommended testing setup, right? <laughs> um, and the answer was like, it doesn't exist yet because uh, that's just, you know, the downside of, of diving in too soon. So we had at one point, um, we had like, near full test coverage for the whole view components um, that we use all, like, all of the base components, sort of, like the regular buttons and all of those. And we basically had to trash them all because we moved from, <laughs> from just the V-test and then the the, mm. the test utils package, I think it was, had a major upgrade when it went through um, 
for, I think it was Vue 3 support must have been, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was a breaking change that was big enough where the result for us was basically, oh, we have to rewrite every single test now um, oh, no. to, to make that work. And at that point, we also just had to make the calls like, yeah, that's at that point in time was not the, the you know, we didn't have time to do that because that was just not worth worth the output. Um, so for, you know, smaller API bits, it has become sort of standard affair to make sure that we add unit tests into the mix whenever we have new, you know, functionality bits. And for the app, we, we really started, have to start from the beginning, really, again. <laughs> um, but luckily now, you know, the tooling has matured quite a bit, especially around, you know, composition API tooling and test tooling there. Yeah, it, it reminds me, like there was at one time, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, or maybe, maybe you guys know, the view test utils was like abandoned. <laughs> like it was an open source project that was abandoned. And yeah, that sounds there, right. there was some, uh, some they weren't sure like what was going to happen. So like a new team came in and took it over and, and kind of brought it back up to snuff. And then, uh, yeah, it was always, yeah, the tooling definitely wasn't there. Then V test came out and that certainly helped. And, and, but it does, it does have some subtle differences from Jest. So if you're going from mm-hmm. Jest to vtest you might have to, might some things might break and and then i think testing library became a lot more mature on the view side too like everybody all the frameworks like the testing library is the right way to do it so now it would be like use view test utils with testing library vtest uh yeah things like things things were constantly changing but now it seems it's much more stable it's so using a testing library as well i'm assuming no, no, actually not. We were using so for, for the API side, it's just raw vtest, so to speak. For the mm. app side, for the longest time, we were we had our own sort of mini wrapper component, funnily enough, that would just instantiate like a tiny mini view app and just render that mm. one component, and then we would just check the output of that. Um, so it was basically a hand rolled version of, you know, a testing library wrappers uh, became. Oh, I'm sure it works. Works works good. I know just a lot of people have been looking at testing library recently. Oh yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I think for, <laughs> for us now the 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 tricky bit there was like when those components were first built, we did it really in a test driven approach and that helped a lot, just making mm. sure the development was good from the get-go. But then there were so many breaking changes in that setup. And then you know around the time that it was like okay for just the PR uh, you know catching new bugs, the time investment, the redo all of those tests from scratch for what is you know thousands <laughs> thousands of lines because it's a fairly big view code base um you know we we couldn't we couldn't slot that in um that that was not a return on investment that we were willing to make at the time unfortunately but now you know as everybody i'm sure here is familiar trying to reapply you know proper test driven style tests after the fact is also a challenge and a half <laughs> um so it's it's basically became you know um for for updated for new components and updated work, we're trying to include it as much as we can. Um, and then with the intent is basically, you know, it's a living organism. We know that everything will be replaced over time continuously because that's kind of how big code bases work. So whenever a part gets replaced, that's the moment to really just be very tight about it. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not familiar with testing library myself. Are you? Is that what you're using to do like front end tests, like browser tests? Or is everything we've been talking about so far just your unit tests and code code tests? Yeah, well, with testing libraries, like using mostly for like UI component testing, mm-hmm. uh, it's just it it uses when you do selectors, it uses like by role, by label text, 
Uh, so it's supposed to be like more accessible in that way. So like if you're going to grab a, a certain piece of text or label, like you assume like an input has label and if you don't have it, you wouldn't be able to select it correctly. So it kind of encourages that. Uh, and then it just it's just another way to 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 do some testing and it, it can sit on top of the the test utils library from view. So is it comparable to like a playwright or a Cypress? No, it's like, still like it's still like a unit component okay. test. It's not gotcha. like end to end like a playwright or Cypress. That's that's another conversation. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, Rick, I was gonna you? ask you if that's something that you use at all. <laughs> I it's yeah. <laughs> it's it's oh man, it's it's a discussion that I love having in, in my team over and over again too, because it's it's around end-to-end testing and sort of the 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 tricky bit is especially in a quickly growing project and startup, it's just the time investment and the return that you get out of it, right? So I think testing in general is a no-brainer. I think unit tests to me are a no-brainer because the the cost to write them is small enough where the return becomes immediately more than plenty useful. But I think, you know, unit tests can get you to that sort of 75, 80% mark. And then you can have some integrations test to squeeze that to sort of, you know, 85, 90. And then end to end is really where you get the full coverage. But then the cost to get that last 10% is non-trivial because to really set up all the different user flows, especially in an app, that is meant to be so user configurable and sort of do whatever right. for the user. The you know the the time investment to set up the full end to end test coverage is just so so large that it it almost becomes no longer worth doing. Right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I you know my day to day is managing a very very large <laughs> web app that's about to get larger, and so you know, we know our fixed flows. Okay, if you log in here and do this, this should happen here and this should happen here and you should see this at this place and so on. So it's very easy to, and we rely pretty heavy, heavily on our Dusk. Dusk is a front-end testing framework for our Laravel uh, that we use. But yeah, that makes a good point that when you have something that's user configurable that can fit an infinite number of combinations, then it's really sort of hard to to write tests. It's actually probably more on the user, I would imagine, to to write their own tests for you know, their own application. And probably like 15 years ago when you were writing jQuery, no one thought of writing tests on the front end. It was all like, well, we just got to have our back end tests and and front end isn't as important. But things have changed. Yeah. So before we wrap up, because I know Eric's got to go in a few minutes, a couple of questions going back to direct us. So for, since everything is SQL as of right now, do you have a particular ORM they are using to... Do you communicate with SQL? No. Like a mongoose no, for node type thing? Or? Nope. No, really not. And that is also because we, you know, introspect the database as it sits and then use the tables and columns that are configured as the schema. So we dynamically have to generate all of those schemas. So it's not like with most ORMs where you define a schema up front and then you get a nice sort of JavaScript set of APIs to talk to that particular schema. The schema in for us is just unknown because it's up to the end user to configure it however they want to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, you know, there isn't really any use case anymore for an ORM, ironically enough. Um, so we do rely on connects currently as a sort of abstraction all the way down, uh, down the, the core, core, core. Um, but the ORM piece around it, the thing that does, you know, the validation and the nested data checking and, and stitching everything together, that's hand rolled, um, and custom made to be 
you know, to be as flexible as we needed to be for, for the directors APIs. All right. Cool. I've got a million more questions to ask you about directors. So I'm going to have to look into it and we can chat when we're done. But for now, we'll move on to picks. Uh, first of all, thanks for coming on and talking about this. This has been really fascinating. It's always, for me, it's always fascinating to hear how something's being used in a world, real world application, right? How views being used, not just how to use it, but this is how we're using it. And boy, is it scaling. <laughs> Let me tell you. Mm. So um, with that, we'll move on to picks. Picks are part of the show where we get to talk about anything we want to talk about within reason, of course, that don't violate FCC guidelines. <laughs> Actually, we're not governed by the FCC. But anyway, uh, Eric, what do you got for us to pick? All right. So I got one fun pick and one kind of more technical pick, uh, more more of a plug. So I'll, I'll go with the pluggy uh, pick first. So uh, we have been working on my work on our documents site. Speaking about docs, so if you go to AWS or docs.amplify.aws, we are working on some new features. By the time this comes out, it'll probably look a little newer. Uh, we're doing some updates in on it, so I'm really excited about that. We also have some really cool things we're going to be releasing at reInvent, which is like a big AWS conference. So I'm excited about that. And then my fun pick is that I have, uh, if you haven't seen it. I think hopefully it's still beyond, but check out the Taylor Swift Eras Tour movie. I mean, my wife went to it. It uh, we went to the concert too, but it's she's just like a crazy performer, Taylor Swift. It's uh, you don't even have to like her music if you're not even into like that type of music. It's just like a fun experience, and there's crazy, uh, just the quite quite a crazy performance and all the costume changes and the backgrounds mm. and it's 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 definitely fun in a theater uh, so ch- check that out the taylor swift era tour movie cool uh let's see for me i have one sort of legit pick and then the high point of the show which are my dad jokes as everybody who's a regular listener knows um came across an interesting blog post the other day from a neurosciencenews.com and the subjects of some studies that were done recently that talk about how the brain engages differently with an in-person conversation versus a Zoom conversation. And this comes into play uh, with, with over the past few years with uh, what happened to our kids with, quote-unquote, distance learning during COVID, you know, with a lot of more remote work and how things are done with Zoom. And the gist is that you have a lot more neural activity in your brain when you communicate with somebody in person, face-to-face versus over a teleconference over Zoom. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's a place called uh, neuroscience-news.com um, and about the brain activity. Really fascinating read. Uh, and for the dad jokes of the week, sorry, we, we're on a new system. I don't have my sound effects, so you'll just have to imagine them when I, when I tell the jokes. Um, so first of all, just a sort of a deep thoughts question. Uh, when butterflies are in love, do they feel humans in their stomachs? Right? <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, two slices of bread got married. The ceremony was going quite well, and then somebody decided to toast the bride and groom. Ba-bum. And uh, we're recording the day after Halloween. So I'll throw in a Halloween joke. Why would... Why was a black cat so small? Because mm. it only drank condensed milk. So, oh, nice. Anyway, 
dad jokes of the week. All right, Greg, what do you have for us? Man, that is hard to top. <laughs> okay, I'll start with a, a a bit of a technical one, maybe a little bit of a pluggy one. Uh, one thing that I was recently working on uh, that has been been a lot of fun to explore is sort of themeability and allowing people to configure, you know, what things look like as well as how they work. Um, and I've been really, really fascinated and excited for all of the advancements that are happening in sort of collar spaces in CSS in general. You know, how you can transform collars into different collar spaces. So you have more collars available for, you know, modern monitors. How you can mix different collars together. That's been a game changer for me where you can, you know, where usually I would set up a, a SAS palette of like, you know, 20 shades of, of one color. So I have them available. I can now just say we have one shade and then mix in a bit of white and mix in a bit more white to get to the different shades. Um, so that has been all, you know, it's one of those things where you don't really need it until you really do. And then you're very, very glad that it now exists. So I'm, I've been really excited about that. But web.dev has a couple of really good articles on, on what is coming there too. Um, and then to match the uh, the Eros tour, I kind of wanted to say, also go check out, you know, the new release from the Talking Heads. Like they re-released that Stop Making Sense tour oh, man. that they did. And it's a similar thing, but they re-released it in, in sort of a new master from the original Prince. So it's kind of a similar thing now uh, in Cinemas that I think is it. Man, I can still so remember that album from when I was in high school. <laughs> that was huge. Stop making sense, man. I, I'd have to go back and look at the songs. I know I'd remember them. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a huge album back then. Late 80s, mid, late 80s. For sure. All righty. So before we go, where can people contact you, see what you're doing, give you money, etc.? <laughs> well, I, I live and work on GitHub nowadays. So it's github.com slash my full name slash Greg van Zanten. Um, I'm also on Mastodon on the Fostodon server for the open source community under the same name um, and on various places on the internet under that same name. Excellent. All righty. And then, of course, directus.io. Um, if you make the, uh, if you search for directus like I did, you will come upon something about food, which is nothing to do with what he's doing. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Directus.us. That's not it. We want directus.io to get to, to their platform. So, all right. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been awesome. I enjoyed talking to you. And Likewise. for everybody else, we will talk to you next time on Views on View.